You're listening to the Great Recruiter Training Podcast. Here we go. Hosted by industry expert, trainer, and motivator, Scott Love. Hi, this is Scott Love, and thanks for joining me for the second issue of the Great Recruiter Training Podcast. In this issue, I'm going to reveal to you one of the most powerful technology tools that you can use to recruit more candidates, close more deals, overcome more objections, and make more placements. Now, before I tell you about this, you've probably seen a lot of the emails come through promoting different programs of training for the industry on using the web to recruit. And there's nothing wrong with using the web. Those programs are adequate, and they're good, and they provide some value. The one thing you need to look at, though, is what is your time worth? Where do you get the greatest return for your time? Let's even use an example of a dollars per hour. How much is your time worth in terms of what you, what you pay your people for? Let's just say that the time it takes to close a deal, your recruiters, on average, make $100 an hour. So you're paying them $100 an hour. Now, when they're spending their time doing this Internet research... What is that time worth? Well, it's worth $4 an hour. Why is it worth $4 an hour? Because you can find companies offshore to do the exact same thing for $4 an hour. So what that means is that every time your staff is doing Internet research, you're losing $96 an hour. Where do you find these people to do this stuff? Well, you go to elance.com, elance, E-L-A-N-C-E.com. It's kind of like freelance but with an E. And that's a place where you can find people all over the world to do projects for you. Software projects, programming projects, design projects, uh, voiceover projects, all that stuff, even research, search firms, uh, clients of mine, search firm clients that I've, I've been to their offices and, and done training with them. They hire companies in India to use the web to build a list, whether it's social media or other tools that they use. And on average, the cost is $4 an hour. So when you look at it from that perspective, why are you guys spending so much time doing something that's only going to give you a $4 return for your time? What you need to be doing is spending your time in an area that gives you the greatest return for that. And what that is is your sales skills. What we do is a high-value activity. When you look at the life cycle of, let's just say, a product, call it the Walkman a long time ago or DVDs or VCRs or whatever, there's always a phase where when a product comes out, it's really, really expensive, and not a lot of people have that. And some people are what they call the early adopters, and they're the first kids on their block to have the new tools. Well, back when the cell phones came out, did you know that the very first cell phone from Pac Bell back in 1985 could be installed in a car for about $3,800? That's how much it cost. It was a really big deal. It was not a commodity. When all this information came out about how to use Twitter and all this, that stuff was very valuable. But you know what? Everybody's an expert on Twitter. Everybody's an expert on LinkedIn. It's become a commodity. This knowledge has become a commodity so much that now you can outsource that. The same way that the DVD players, when at one time they were really the cool latest toys, now they're commodities. Everybody has them. It's not a big deal. It's the same way with using technology and using information. I will tell you, though, one technology tool that has maintained its value and is not a commodity. And you know what it is? It's the telephone. It's your ability to engage a stranger in a dialogue and build trust, build a relationship, get them to do things that have fear involved in them, like considering leaving their company. So one of the coaching clients that I've been working with for a long time, he sent me an email. He said, one of my recruiters has a candidate that's on the fence. And this is the email that we've crafted, that we've written, we wanted you to look at this and let us know what you think about the email. And I told him, I said, listen, you can't send this to the guy because what you're doing, you're trying to use technology, the web, an email, to change someone's behavior. And that's not going to work. 
to do that, there needs to be an emotional context to that. Where do you get this emotional context? It's through the relationship, through the telephone, the voice of the recruiter talking to the candidate. And as it turns out, the recruiter was just afraid. He was afraid that the candidate would back out and he didn't want to face that fear. So he just typed up an email and and delegated it to the email. When you look at where your time is most valuable, it's in the sales skills. And I know I say this a lot, but you know what? I, I I just see this everywhere. I see so many recruiters spending so much time in the wrong direction. They're going eagerly into a place that's not going to give them a return for their time. That's just my own opinion on that. And I, and I love some of these guys that do this stuff for the industry, and they're great, and they're very smart. But the knowledge that they have, it's a commodity. Your sales skills will never be a commodity. That's something that they can't take away from you. That's, that's something that nobody else can replicate. That's why our business will always be a high-value business, because we can do things that our clients can't do, and it's bring those candidates that nobody else can get to. Now, let's just say you're talking with a candidate. And this is someone that's going through a major change in their life. And there's a few of them. One of them is the getting married. That's a positive stressor, but that's a change. Having a kid, that's a stressor. It's a positive stressor, but it's a big change. Death of a spouse, losing a job, some of these other catastrophic events that happen to us. There's a change involved in that. What do you do when you come across a candidate that's gone through a major change, like gone through a divorce or something like that? I'm not saying that that candidate is not a good fit for you, the job, with all the things going on in his or her life. But you know what? You need to be aware of it. How do you do that? You ask questions. And here's two questions you can ask. The first one is this. And this is, let's just say, when you're, you're recruiting the candidate and you've got someone that's interested or you're qualifying them after you got the resume, you ask them, say, is there anything that would keep you from making a move in the next 30 to 60 days or the next 60 to 90 days? What do you mean? Well, is there anything, as we go through this, is there anything that would actually keep you from making the move in the next 30 to 60 days? Well, their spouse could be not wanting to relocate or whatever it is. You want to use that question to find out what are those potential problems in your deal. The second question you can ask them is this. As we go through this process, Joe, can you actually see yourself turning your notice in, leaving your company and starting somewhere else in the next 60 to 90 days? Is that something that you can actually see yourself doing? And when the candidate thinks and says, I'm not sure, well, it's better to lose out on a candidate early in the process than at the end. That's why we ask those qualifying questions. That's why you have to have that emotional context to the relationship early on in the process. So you're building the relationship with the candidate, and you're going to use that relationship as a tool to move the candidate forward as long as it's in the candidate's best interest. So the other day I'm talking to a candidate. I did a a recruit call with him. And he was open, but he said, you know what, Scott, I've gone through a major change recently. Uh, my wife just passed away. And I said, I'm sorry. So when someone tells you they've gone through that, you just you say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear that. And you just stop and wait for them to talk. It can be an awkward moment, but you know what? It needs to be addressed. If they bring it up in the conversation, it needs to be acknowledged. We can't shy away from that. We have to talk about that. And all you need to do is say, I'm sorry to hear that. And you just stop and you wait for them to continue. And the candidate said, I just really don't know if I can put the kids through another change like this. Me leaving my firm and going somewhere else. I've been here for 10 years. I'm really not satisfied, but I just don't know if I can do that. How do you deal with the candidate that's at that place? Well, it all goes back to the principles of ethical influence. And a lot of you guys know, if you've been to my seminars, if you've seen my videos and all that, I I teach that stuff. I spend a whole half day in a two-day program talking about the foundation of our business, which is ethical influence. What's the psychology behind that? And one of those principles, it's what I call the first cardinal rule of human behavior, is that people only do what's in their own best interest. And you can't fight that. 
You need to just admit that and use that concept as the energy to drive the deal forward. You need to harness that intrinsic motivation that's already going on within the heart of that candidate and use that to drive the deal forward. And if the candidate is hesitating, then we need to find out why is that. We need to find out one of two things. Is that situation a deal killer or a deal complicator? And there's a big difference. And you have to be able to know which one is which. If you come across a candidate where there's a deal killer and you try to overcome that and move it forward, you're going to lose points from the emotional bank account that you have with the candidate. They're going to see you as just a selfish recruiter. And some things are really obvious. Like this situation, it could be a real obvious deal killer. I don't know yet. And you know what? It's up to the candidate to decide. So that's why I, I firmly disagree with the concept of candidate control that we've all been taught when we started in the business because we can't control other people. Some situations just aren't meant to happen. And there's nothing you can do to fight that. On the other hand... Some situations are meant to happen, but the candidate doesn't know that yet, and it's up to you to facilitate the process of change. When you have a candidate that gives you an objection, and you know that there is some real value to your client's opportunity, you have a duty to that candidate to overcome the objection. But you need to be smart about that and, and ascertain, is it a deal killer or is it a deal complicator? So this is what I told the candidate. I said, listen, why don't you do this? Why don't you, why don't you go home? Why don't you talk with the people who are important to you? about this whole situation. You know, worst case scenario, it might be good for you to just get out of the office and interview somewhere else. Sometimes a change is the best way to cope with situations like this. Sometimes some people need a, a break in other areas when they go through a major change, like something like this or divorce or whatever. It's, it's, sometimes it's helpful to have a change in multiple areas. But that's for you to decide. Whatever you want to do, I'm fine with. This is your career, and it's important to me that you make decisions that are really the best thing for you to do. That's what I'm committed to. So if we go forward, and if the candidate does decide to interview with my client, what do you think he's going to feel about me? He's going to feel that I am someone that's committed to him and him doing what he wants to. Because you know what? That's the only way it has to be. But like I said, we're salespeople. We're in the business of convincing people to do things so that we get a commission, right? We have to focus on the contribution that we make to other people. This business is so much more than the tactics, which is where all the recruiter training has always been. When I first got in the business, and, and I'm not putting down the other training. I mean, people know how to teach things based on their experience and what's helped them. For myself, though, I, I just know that I don't have the same level of talent of a lot of the other trainers in the business. I just don't have that natural skill. So my process has been to figure out what the systems are behind their success and create a paint-by-the-numbers, step-by-step approach to the business so that way average people can achieve above average production. I'm an average guy and I've been able to produce at the same level of some of those people with much more talent than me because I understand the systems behind that. And one of those systems is the principles of ethical influence. So when you're talking to a candidate that's gone through a major life change, remember those two questions. The first one is, is there anything that would keep you from going forward in the next 30 to 90 days? And the second one is, can you actually see yourself going forward, turning your notice in and leaving your firm and starting somewhere else in the next 60 to 90 days? Can you actually see yourself doing that? Now, here's your homework assignment. I want you to take those two questions, and I want you to write them down in your journal. The first one, again, is, is there anything that would keep you from going forward? The second one is, can you actually see yourself going forward? And the next business day, whether it's tomorrow or Monday or whatever, I want you to use each of those questions at least once when you talk with candidates. When you learn a new concept, you need to use it as a tool. You need to use it right away. Integrate that into your desk right away. I hope that works for you. And shoot me an email. If anything I share with you works for you, 
I, I get emails every day from people that have closed a deal or made a placement or whatever from something that they learned from me, and I really appreciate that. Just shoot me an email. Let me know how that goes for you. Now, moving into another area, we're going to talk with an expert on compensation strategies. A lot of search firm owners have asked me, they said, well, because of the economy, we're thinking of changing the comp plan. So one of the things I did, I researched an expert in sales compensation plans to deliver some of his content to you. His name is Mark Davis, and he's one of the leading authorities in the nation on sales compensation plans. So listen into an interview that I had with him recently and see if you can get some insights into whether or not you should change your comp plan, and if so, how you go about doing that. With me on the line, Mark Davis, who's a consultant with Valitas Group. He consults the sales organizations to help them get rock-solid compensation strategies so that their salespeople produce more. Mark, thanks for joining me today. You bet, Scott. I'm glad to, glad to be here with you. You bet. Now, it's a real interesting time that we're in with, I don't want to say the word that starts with an R, but you know what I'm talking about. Yes, uh, I do. It's a difficult time for a lot of sales folks right now. What What are some of the things that you've seen that organizations do with respect to their compensation to get more performance out of their sales team? Well, honestly, Scott, the, the thing that I see winning sales organizations do, um, honestly, is not any different today in difficult economic times as it is when times are great. And, and that is not look at compensation as a series of formulas uh, to tweak or mathematical um, uh, formulas to try to work out, but, but to step back and first ask the question, what is the role of our sales force in, in the context of our overall go-to-market strategy? What do we want them to do? And have we articulated that clearly to them, uh, both within and outside the sales compensation plan? Uh, the real jumping-off point for any effective sales compensation plan design process is to clearly articulate the roles and responsibilities of each sales job. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, most companies will jump right to tinkering with incentive formulas as opposed to stepping back and take a, taking a more holistic view. And so what, what are some of the errors? What are some of the biggest mistakes that you've seen sales, sales managers will do, vice presidents of sales will do with the compensation? Uh, one mistake clearly is leaving uh, an old plan on the shelf in place for too long. Uh, sales compensation is dynamic. It is not static. And the one thing, well, a couple of things that will make a sales compensation plan obsolete include changes to a company's business uh, objectives or business strategy, the way they go to market, the, the customer segments that they're focusing on and so forth, changes uh from a strategic standpoint, there will undoubtedly have implications for how we define roles and deploy resources into the field. When that occurs, a sales compensation plan must change to make sure that you're still incenting or driving uh, uh, sales behavior now, around. Now, moving in another the, direction, uh, I've heard from a lot of search firm owners that they're thinking of changing another their compensation thing that will make plan because of the economy. So I thought, you know what, let me do some research on this. I found a gentleman uh, by the name the of Mark Davis. That we He's an expert are different. in sales Customers, compensation uh, strategies. Have a different, uh, so I want you to hear what Mark has to say uh, about that, uh, what is it that you need to do through, through when you change your commission programs and your compensation programs for your staff. feedback that we're really not delivering against what customers need and value from us relative to the competition and they dictate a change in how we serve them. Well, that, too, would suggest that uh, the way we define roles, the way we deploy resources needs to change, and therefore the sales compensation plan needs to change. But it's a caboose. It's not the engine. It will not drive change. It's the strategy that dictates 
the necessary change, but the sales compensation plan has to follow. That's interesting because most people make it the other way around. They think, well, if we change the comp plan, we're going to get more sales. Right. And, and now I would I would submit that to your earlier question. That's another mistake that sales executives tend to make. They expect that the sales compensation plan alone will drive behavior. Now, in the world of 100% commission sales force, that's closer to being true than than when we might have a base or a draw plus commission or bonus. And by the way, the last statistic I saw suggested that only 8% of salespeople in the U.S. operate under 100% commission scenario. So it's relatively rare. Wow. And so we cannot expect the sales compensation plan to supplant sales management. You have to have good old-fashioned sales management in place with all the tool, tools that come in that toolbox, sales compensation plan being but one of them, to drive the desired sales, uh, sales performance. So anytime you make, uh, you affect change in an organization, there's always going to be some resistance there. Uh, and the one thing that uh, when, you, when you talk to disgruntled salespeople, they'll always say, oh, they changed the comp plan. Here I was on my track to get my bonus, and they changed it in midstream. Uh, how, how, do you, how does a sales manager make changes and keep the organization healthy and happy? Well, you're right. Change, particularly in, in terms of the sales compensation plan, is almost always greeted with skepticism. And generally, and I've been doing this for a long time, the sales force initial response will be, they're trying to take money out of my pocket. Uh, when in fact, in my almost 20 years of doing this, Scott, I've only had one client where the presenting issue was we needed to reduce our cost of sales, we're paying too much. One in 20 years. Wow. Uh, the vast majority of the time, it's the need to redirect selling efforts that are more, in a way that are more congruent with our go-forward business strategy, very simply. And so... Um, the key there is, is one of communication. You have to actively communicate with the sales force your intentions on the front end. This cannot be cloak and dagger. They, it has to be transparent and above board. And, in fact, when I do this work, 99% of the time, I'm engaged with frontline salespeople uh, on the front of the project. I, we're giving them the opportunity to provide input into the process at the outset to share not just what they like or dislike about their current compensation arrangement. But really, more than that, how to understand how connected are they to the go-to-market strategy, to their role in, in helping the company succeed. And, and it's a test to see, to see, has management done a good job of communicating with them? So it should be transparent. It should be actively communicated and above board. And, and giving key thought leaders in the field the opportunity to provide input at, at the outset. So that starts to prime the pump a little bit, get them, get them uh, engaged in the process, knowing what's going on. Now, even with that being done, salespeople will still be skeptical, and there will still be naysayers out there that say, management is just doing this to take money out of my pocket. Sure, sure. But active communication is the only way to try to get out in front of that. And on the back end, another thing that management can do is to make sure that the frontline sales management resources are well-trained and equipped to essentially lead the rollout process. I do a survey every year through a big human resources uh, professional association on sales compensation practices. One of the surprising findings uh, in the last two years of the survey is how little companies do to prepare their sales managers for the rollout of a new plan. And what we're essentially asking them to to do is effectively manage 
and coach and develop and mentor those sales resources using this new sales compensation plan as a primary tool. But too many companies if, expect that they can simply launch a new sales compensation plan by email without effect taking any deliberate steps to train and, and uh, bring up to speed their sales management resources, not on just how the plan works, but what was the rationale for changing this in the first place? What were the, what, tell us the business case. Why did we need to do this? What's changing either in our internal environment or our external environment or both that require that we do this change, that we implement the sales compensation pl uh, plan change to make sure that we're well positioned for success? And, and absent that kind of um, training, the sales managers are basically left to their own devices to, to create those sales messages, if you will, to try to get to win the hearts and minds of their salespeople. And let's face it, salespeople want to be sold. Why is this thing good for me? That's right. And I think it comes down to being really a leadership issue uh, with the sales managers having that delicate balance of com what could be competing agendas and making sure that at the end of the day, everybody feels like they're getting something good out of this. Absolutely. It sounds like a pretty complex uh, complex project also. Uh, from, from your experience, Mark, from the time a company uh, has the idea, let's change the comp plan to the time it actually takes place, how long does that usually take? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I will say typically longer than most companies anticipate it will take. Now, one of the variables is how many, how many distinct selling roles are we designing for? A small, let's say, startup sales organization may have just one core sales rep or account executive type role and maybe one sales manager role. Well, that's pretty simple compared to uh, a much larger uh, mature sales organization that has resources all over the world. And they, and they differentiate or specialize sales roles uh, between, say, major accounts versus geographic territory accounts, or certain product segments might have their own dedicated uh, salespeople. And so uh, I've been involved in sales compensation design um, engagements that, that go from a single role to over 25 roles uh, deployed on a global scale. But let's take kind of your typical... Uh, U.S.-based uh, sales organization that might, say, have four to six unique sales and sales management roles. And by the way, you typically don't implement a new sales comp plan just for the frontline sale sellers, but you want to make sure that the different layers of sales management also have their incentive compensation plan aligned to reflect not only how their, um, how their direct reports are paid, but uh, what management is trying to accomplish. But, but from the point at which you launch the plan and you go through all the due diligence to, find, to really understand what are our objectives and our go-to-market strategy going forward, do we have roles defined properly to help execute against those objectives, and what kinds of changes do we need to make in the incentive plan to make sure that we're consistent there, it, you would typically see anywhere from six weeks at the very uh, shortest to as long as three to four months um, just to get to the point at which you have a well-articulated well set of incentive plan rec recommendations that so are really ready to implement. So it could take as long as half a year. Well, when you, when you then realize that all we've done now is define all of the uh, detailed incentive plan specifications and we're ready to start implementation activities, then that rollout process, this is really where the rubber hits the road. This is the training of the sales management team perhaps even doing focus groups with uh, the field, depending on the magnitude of change, 
I mean, you could add easily another four to eight weeks on post-design, just getting ready to make the plan go live, to make sure that you're winning the hearts and minds of, of the sales force before you actually pull the trigger on it. So it can easily be uh, a three to six month process from the time that you start to the time that you actually go live with the new plan. That's, wow, that's that's really interesting stuff, Mark. Now, I know you're an expert on this. I know you wrote a book called The Sales Compensation Handbook. Uh, and if people wanted to find out more about how to order your book or how to take advantage of the resources on your site or even to hire you, uh, how would they be able to find you? Well, probably the easiest way, Scott, is to go to my website, which is www dot com. that's v as in victor a l i t as in tom u s group g r o u p dot com valetusgroup dot com uh, my books are listed on the website um, my most recent book is sales compensation math uh, that came out last year you mentioned the sales compensation handbook uh, to which i'm a contributing author but um, folks can also sign up for my monthly electronic newsletter called sales effectiveness insights where i write on a whole host of topics related to sales compensation and sales force motivation. That's great stuff, Mark. Thanks so much for your time. All right. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next time for more insights, tips, and ideas that can help you become a great recruiter.